Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. So hermeneutics, rule number one, and these are my way of writing these rules, so some textbook might write them differently. Always interpret difficult passages in light of clear passages, not the other way around. There's lots of theologies, or theological systems that have been composed by taking an obscure passage first. So for instance, if it says that God wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life, or it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes. That's pretty clear. Now, we could take that clear one and then go to Romans chapter 9 and look at some weird thing going on with pots and clay and try to interpret that in light of the clear. Or we could ignore the clear and make our entire world revolve around pots and clay which people don't even know is actually an Old Testament reference that's completely been taken out of context by the theologians who try to make their worldview around that. That's an example of hermeneutics at work. Does this make sense? Take the clear and make the and go to the weird ones that seem troublesome and use the clear, very obvious didactic teaching to interpret your obscure ones. Okay, that's number one. Number two. We can sing in church? We can. Okay. Number two, didactic passages should take precedence over historical passages in questions of what is normative, and this is very important, unless, uh, that word the should not be there, it's a typo, unless it can be clearly shown that the intent of the historical narrative is to establish a normative pattern. Now what am I saying here? So a didactic, didactics is teaching to give you how to act. That's what didactics means. So didactic passages would be places like James that says, consider it joy. That's telling you exactly what to do. You know, if Paul instructs you in Ephesians that uh, the way that the uh, body should work, or we just had new elders installed, he gives instructions to Timothy of how to evaluate someone to be an elder. That's a didactic passage. Does that make sense? It's a clear, here's what you do. We have narrative passages, historical narrative, that tell, that describe things. And, by the way, there's a whole debate on whether narrative is as um Influential, not not inspired, but it should be as influential as didactic passages. Um, there's a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by um, Gordon Fee was one of the authors. And Fee is actually um, a Pentecostal, but he came under massive heat because he says in that book that you should use didactic passages exclusively to figure out what to do. And man, he just got read the riot act on that deal. I will just tell you uh, that today that's not really what considered true. This, this phrase, though, is key. If you're looking at a historical event and you want to go, is this normative? Is this what we should be doing at all times? We need to know that the intent of telling us that story is so that that's how we would operate. That's got to be very clear. So as an example of that would be the Lord's Supper. 
We're told the story of the Lord's Supper, but he's telling you the story so that you will continue to have the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? Okay. So, those two things in mind. By the way, this is going to bug me, so give me one second. Yes. So what you're saying is if God's frustrated with us, he's not going to always speak through a donkey. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. So let's go back to Acts chapter 8. What's going on here? Well, let me give you some thoughts on Acts chapter 8. Number one, the recipients of the gospel were Samaritans, and they're despised by the Jews. Y'all think we have racial reconciliation issues in America. This is not a new thing. As Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Jesus knew what he was doing when he tells the story of the good Samaritan because it would have been absolutely scandalous to suggest to a Jewish person, especially the Pharisees, that a Samaritan should be their neighbor, should be their brother. So, going back to what we said before, remember the Gentiles have not yet been brought into the fold in Acts chapter 10. So the Jews think this is just true Judaism continuing right on down the path. And suddenly, you got these Samaritans who no one can trust a Samaritan. I mean, all the things that you might hear someone would say as a racial epithet or slur here in America about any race, they were definitely said about Samaritans. Samaritans were untrustworthy. They were, they were slovenly. They were ugly. They didn't, uh, you know, they were lazy. They were likely to steal from you. They were more likely to commit crime. Like all this stuff just literally just plucked from air because they didn't like them. So, these are the people receiving the gospel. So, what has to happen? Well, Philip, this Philip in this passage is not the Philip that was the apostle. This Philip is a Philip that was chosen for service in Acts chapter 6 when the first seven deacons in the history of the church are chosen. It's a different Philip than the apostle Philip. So he doesn't have the authority that the apostles had. By the way, this is the passage in Acts chapter 6 I'm referring to. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. This was a food. The twelve summoned the whole company. Notice the twelve summoned the company of disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who becomes the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, and Philip, that's this guy we're talking about now, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So that's the Philip that's happening in Acts, that's, that's present in Acts chapter 8. Everybody got that? He goes on from being a deacon, and he goes out and starts preaching. So, much like the encounter with the first Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, the original believers may not have accepted Samaritans without the testimony of an apostle. Just like Peter had to go back to the people in Jerusalem and say, listen, God's doing something here. He's doing something with these Gentiles. We have to let them in. 
In the same way, the original Jewish believers may not have accepted the Samaritans into the fold without the uh, testimony of one of the apostles. By the way, sending an apostle to affirm what happens or what's going on happened all the time. They sent Barnabas to Antioch because um, I don't know if you know much about Antioch, but um, Antioch... (laughs) Antioch was like the most licentious city in the ancient world. Antioch was so sinful, the Romans were embarrassed of them. (laughs) Now that says something. That's saying a lot. If the Romans think they've gone too far. So when when, when when there's a church sprouting up in Antioch and all these believers are there, the apostles are like, what? What? we got to know what's going on. So they send Barnabas over there. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. He gets to Antioch. He sees it's true. He's like, we got to disciple these people post-haste. He sends for this guy named Saul, who had not had a ministry yet, brings Saul there to help him disciple the people in Antioch. Okay, so sending an apostle to affirm things happened all the time in the early part of the church. Okay, so... That's, that's my thoughts, is that what's going on in, the, in Acts chapter 8 is a unique historical circumstance, just like with the Gentiles, where you needed an apostle to affirm that this is really happening and, and, and testify to that back at home. So we've seen a couple of places in Acts where that doesn't take place, but it does take place in Acts chapter 8. Any thoughts or questions on that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it won't be the first. It wasn't the first, and it will prove to not be the last time that people who were claiming to be followers of Jesus somehow didn't hear what he said. <laughs> I know that doesn't happen to us today, but. Correct. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter has to go to a Gentile and see it take place. And the only thing that happened was because Philip, you know, Philip was amazing apparently. Like he just decides to take the bull by the horns and he's just like, I'm going to go spread the gospel. And he's just out there doing it. And then these Samaritans hear the gospel, but there's no apostle around. They're like, we better rush over there and see what's going on. Well, Peter is the one who happens to go do it with the Gentiles, so guess what? It's simultaneous because Peter's sitting there. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the next um, passage that is controversial is Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him. That is, Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now, the reason this creates controversy is that the Pentecostal reads this to mean 
follower of Christ. There were some disciples. Then Paul gets there and says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, if there's a disciple and they haven't received the Holy Spirit, then there's a separation in time there. Wow, I never realized that. Because they can make a lot to do about that. Well, John had disciples. Correct. So let me give you some thoughts on this passage. The first is the disciples were disciples of John the Baptist, not Christ. And notice that the question in verse 2 implies that it's normal to receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. Look what it says. He asked him, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What does that imply? That that's the normal thing. When you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. And then they're like, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, which further confirms they haven't heard the gospel. No self-respecting Jewish person would not have heard of the Holy Spirit. So they're like, no, we didn't even know. He's like, oh, wait, <laughs> then what were you baptized into then? And they're like, oh, John's baptism. And he realizes, I'm not dealing with somebody who's even heard the gospel yet. So he says to him, well, no, John's baptizing into repentance, but he's pointing you to who's going to come after him. And then this is a summary, basically, of I'm, Paul's now sharing the gospel um, with them. And then when they heard that, the actual gospel, they become believers and they get baptized. So you can say Paul thought they had already believed. Correct. See, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He thinks they've already heard the gospel. They haven't heard the gospel. And then last, if you suggest it's possible to place faith in Christ and not receive the Holy Spirit, well, what's the definition of a Christian then? Is it someone who believes but doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit? That's a Christian? And, more important, I would ask you, if you were to take that position, do you think Luke would have agreed with that new definition of Christian? Someone who's believed in Jesus but doesn't have the Holy Spirit. I don't think Luke would have agreed with that definition. Okay. Um, now, what was our first hermeneutical rule? Uh, take the easy stuff and then apply it to the difficult Correct. So. Uh, test on this. Are we going to have to be really good at spelling on some of these things? Yes. Yeah, yeah. When we, t when we test you, this is not going to be multiple choice. It's all going to be essay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, by the way, I would just say, you know, because of that point, are we going to build our theology on exceptional cases? Or are we going to build our theology on clear, normative, repeated cases? Right? I think you have to take the whole Bible. Of course. And, and, and I mean, you're, you're scaring me a little bit by trying to separate things clearly into clear and murky. Because what... Your example that you gave, mm -hmm. I would give the same example, and I would put them in the opposite category. So really? <clears throat> okay. Happy to have that discussion. Yeah. Then we do soteriology. Exactly. Exactly. So, I but I understand your I understand your rule, mm -hmm. and it's a good one. Mm -hmm. But just be careful. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be careful. Hopefully I am. I mean, uh, let, let's, let, what I mean by obscure is that if, if, 
is, does, does this say something like, Dear Christian, once you've received Christ, you should then wait and then ask the Holy Spirit. And then once you receive the Holy Spirit later, then you will immediately speak in tongues and that's the evidence. Does it say that? No, it's this narrative that we're trying to interpret the narrative to mean something. And your second rule works really well. Right? Yeah. So this, is a, this would be what we would say is a more obscure passage to build a theology on. So do we have some clear passages that can help us with this theology? I would say the answer is yes, very much so. Now, we've already shown you Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, and Acts chapter 15 that definitely make the case that salvation and the power and the baptism of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand, correct? Okay, but let's go further. First of all, two contentions. Scripture will be unified theologically. You won't have one theology in Paul and another theology in Luke. That will never happen. Okay, so if we think that there's a separation, something has gone wrong. We've done something that's not true. And two, Luke traveled with Paul, to use your point, Mike, and would have understood Pauline theology better than anybody. Okay. Maybe, maybe N.T. Wright. Okay, yeah, N.T. Wright is close. <laughs> close. Okay, so, first of all, we have a passage that says the Holy Spirit is your seal, at salvation. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? According to this, when you believed. When you believed, yes. Ephesians 4.30 Don't grieve the Holy, God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed it by him for the day of redemption. This is indicating that every Christian who reads this verse, this could apply to. He doesn't say, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit for those of you who have prayed later to receive Him and have Him. Right? This is an assumption that it's to everyone who would read it. Next, we see that the Holy Spirit is God's cleansing agent for the believer. If Romans 15, 15 through 16. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you boldly, more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by whom? The Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, another just phrase for the Holy Spirit. Any questions about these verses? They're pretty clear, right? How about the Holy Spirit as the believer's righteousness? Romans 2.29, on the contrary, a person who is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. What makes someone a Christian? It's circumcision of the heart. What is circumcision of the heart? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the receipt of the Holy Spirit. Here's a really long one. Same idea. Uh, Romans chapter 8, which is all about life in the Spirit. You may want to pull this up on your own Bible. Romans 8, 1 through 17. 
says, therefore, there is no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to what? The Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however meaning Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I mean, that's like, I don't know how it could be more clear about the connection between being in Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's what? Sons. All those led by God's what are God's sons? Spirit. So there's a connection there. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so the Spirit makes you God's child. If you are God's child, you have the Holy Spirit. You should thus walk in the Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not God's child, and you're going to die because you're going to live according to the flesh. Total connection between these, right? Another one, Galatians 5, 5 through 6. For we eagerly await the, wait through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. We await through the Spirit by faith. There's a total connection there. Further down in Galatians 5, 16 through 26, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
The Holy Spirit is proof of our fellowship with God. Romans 8, 14-17. We already read a portion, a bigger portion of this. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. So the only way to have fellowship with God is by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Doesn't say because you're God's sons and because you prayed later to ask for it. You got it, right? Now I know that's an argument from silence a little bit, but the, I'm, I'm being—I'm just making a point that it's—it's it's pretty clear, right? The Holy Spirit um, uh, comes with believing. Galatians three two. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? I mean, that's—I don't know how you can be any clearer than that. God, is there anything in the book of Luke to show a, a separate baptism? No. So, okay. No. I didn't think so. um, by the way, notice that it's contrasted with asking. It's by believing. You don't ask for the Spirit. You receive the Spirit when you... Believe. Exactly. And then the Holy Spirit is continually supplied, Ephesians 5. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled on an ongoing basis continually, that's the, that's the Greek, with, uh, by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, so do we have clear passages that help us interpret these kind of thorny ones like Acts chapter 8? Like, yes, as long as we don't have to spell. <laughs> okay. And by the way, she said, you said, uh, Debbie said she's concerned that I'm making this connect, this separation of clear and not clear. I didn't make that connection or separation. Every theologian in the world makes that separation. Every hermeneutical book you would read would tell you. You want to go and see. Is there something that makes it like beyond obvious? Because if it does, and you got something that's not obvious, this should be used to get this right, not the, the not obvious thing used, and now we got to go figure out what we do with this obvious one. No, I'm not challenging the rule. Yeah. I'm even challenging your Okay, well, I think the word all, I think the word all, I don't know what else, like, uh, what the word all could mean if it's not all. Somehow God doesn't know the definition of all. Just remind me. Okay, I just and, and like you just said, either the whole scripture is unified theologically. One hundred percent agree with that too. There you go. One hundred percent agree with that too. Glad you agree. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It, it seems like you know the charismatics have a, a problem with putting God into a box, saying, "Okay, you do it's the outline next," you know, and, and this is the way it's supposed to happen. But I think too, at the same time, many of us. You know, put God in the box. Without a doubt. Yeah, and, and well, the best example of that when I saw in my lifetime was a guy named Ron Free who came to know Christ in his 40s, uh -huh. joined my will, uh -huh. went to um, uh, Mozambique, uh -huh. and uh, was asked to uh, do the miraculous healings. Uh -huh. And he said, I'm not charismatic, I don't do those kind of things. Uh -huh. If you've got a big problem with that, I suggest you go elsewhere. Uh -huh. And they informed him that uh, if he couldn't show these signs, their tradition says that he's put to death. Mm. So he laid hands on people, and he said uh, people were miraculously ill. Mm -hmm. 
And afterwards, he was angry with God. I did not come to Africa to do this kind of stuff. You want somebody to do this, God. And this mm -hmm. is this guy talked this way. Mm -hmm. You go find somebody else. Mm -hmm. And he spent ten years there. He mm -hmm. came back and said, "This is really confusing." And don't believe it. The point of that is, we get what we need when we need it, and then just don't expect it to be just like Acts. Yeah. Well, it's not a formula. Yeah, it's not it's not formulaic. That's the point. And I think first of all, to your first point, charismatics would say that non-charismatics are the one that put God in the box puts God in the box. Well, we that, that says God can only operate this way, right? Um, the the other thing I would just point out is that none of this has to do with the debate about cessationism, which is that point that talk is a cessationist question. Does is are miraculous gifts still in operation today? And 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 uh, Reformed theologians don't agree on that point. There are many, 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 many Reformed theologians who are not cessationists at all, and will say, "I'm not a cessationist." So, yeah, of course. Piper versus MacArthur is a fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say MacArthur is even a Reformed theologian at all, because MacArthur believes in lordship salvation. Lordship salvation is that you must say that He is your Lord before you can be saved. Um, and that's not a predetermined thing. Piper would say that everything is predetermined. Every thought you have, if you go rape a child, it's because God ordained it. Piper has preached that from his pulpit multiple times. Um, so that there's a MacArthur and Piper are not the same guy. But I agree that they 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 like. Piper yeah. Still yeah, Piper's for sure not a cessationist. Well, the guy I'm about to quote, Walter Kaiser, who was the president of the Gordon-Conwell Seminary, one of the most preeminent Reformed uh, institutions in the world, um, he is not a cessationist. Um, and he's their, uh, he was their uh, professor of Old Testament theology as well. But he said this uh, in this book called Perspective on Spirit Baptism. He said, how then shall we define the technical term baptized in the Holy Spirit? We believe it is best to go with Paul's inspired statement of purpose in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that this baptism was the initial work of God of incorporating all believers, first at Pentecost, then at Samaria, and again at Caesarea, into one unified body of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, thereafter, all who believed at the time of their conversion were brought by God and the Holy Spirit to join this body and to be part of this one body that is called the Believing Church of Jesus Christ. I think that's the best summary I could possibly find of, and like I said, it's not the Reformed position. It's literally the church's position up to the day that Pentecostalism emerges on the scene that this is how this is how things operate. So just to show you the verse he's referring to, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. That's what he's referring to. What percentage of um, Orthodox believers are in that camp? In which camp? The, the Pentecostal. <sighs> I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a large number. Well, the the fastest growing part of the church in the world is uh, well, there's there's an argument about this, but the one of the fastest growing uh, sides of the church is in Africa, and it is very heavily Pentecostal and charismatic. Very, very heavily Pentecostal charismatic. Okay. Any questions? This is good. I like this discussion. Next week we're going to talk about is speaking in tongues the evidence of spirit baptism. Why not?
Well, that's that's this is part of the uh, you know the we have to address this question because there's the two sine qua nons of Pentecostal theology are it's a secondary work of grace and it is evidenced by speaking in tongues. I have a funny story to share. It's so embellished. It was the second charismatic church I went. No, first charismatic church I visited. It stayed at for a while. When they found out I wasn't charismatic, they asked me if I believed that the Father is the Holy Spirit were present in these days. And I said, absolutely not. Some of them are missing. So they said, well, then you don't believe in the gift of tongues. And I said, absolutely wrong. You said you speak in tongues. I'm good enough with it. Then they said, well, what gifts do you think are missing and are not here? And I said, well, I just moved to California. And as of yet, I have never seen anyone that had the gift of wisdom or discernment. <laughs> 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 All right. This is good stuff. Appreciate you guys. Uh, okay, so I won't be here next week. So um, what I was going to do is ask somebody to continue through the discussion guide that I created for y'all, which is on the names of the Holy Spirit. So I encourage you guys to still meet. But we will be back together in two weeks, and we will address this as the first of many questions we will get to. All in the same week. Yes, ma'am. Scott, you mentioned discussion guide. Is that something you passed out? No, no, no. Uh, well, yeah, if you were here during the weeks that I wasn't here, I produced this thing for everybody to just discuss while I was gone uh, in the class. But we can pr we'll print new ones for next time. Yep. Oh, I just didn't have it. No. I don't even have it. I don't have one. Don't worry about it. Okay, God bless you guys. This is good. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.